This is Dr. Carissa Hines of Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa. Information without understanding is not very helpful. Talk with the doctor and feel like you're talking to a friend. This is Dr. Carissa Hines, and you are listening to Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa. I hope you all have had a fabulous week. And so we are going to be talking about a little bit of a sensitive uh, subject today. We're going to talk about racism and discrimination in healthcare. Um, of course, you know, it is a, it is a thing, um, and it is an uncomfortable topic uh, for some. But before we get into that, we are going to start the way we usually do with our show, our show starters, our shout outs. So shout out to my number one fan. Hey, mom, I hope you are having a terrific Thursday. Shout out to family in Norfolk, Virginia, Virginia Beach, Virginia, Chesapeake, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Hobbs, New Mexico, Houston, Texas, Seattle, Washington, Hampton, Virginia, Woodbridge, Virginia, Columbus, Georgia, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Charlotte, North Carolina, Gaston, Alabama, Center, Alabama, Oxford, North Carolina, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Temecula, California, Cedar Bluff, Alabama, College Park, Georgia, Opelika, Alabama, Lusby, Maryland, and lastly, but most certainly not least, Newport News, Virginia. So as always, shout out to your city, shout out your city on our Facebook page at Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa and tell me where you are listening from and next week we will shout your city out. We always love to welcome new listeners to our little show that we have here, our little family. As I said, we are broadcasting live in Atlanta from the WWE Real 1100 AM studio. You can also watch us on the web. You can stream the show at www.real1100.com and watch us live on Facebook. We're alive now on the Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa Facebook page and also on the Old Fashioned Health Network Facebook page. We have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash medical minutes with Dr. Carissa, where we will be posting all of my old shows, new shows, um, things that are not related to the show, and, you know, just kind of sign up and follow along and participate with that. As I said, we are a proud part of the Old Fashioned Network, oh, excuse me, Old Fashioned Health Network family. This show is also a podcast, and we are heard on the following podcast platforms iTunes, Google, Captivate, Spotify, Amazon, Overcast, TuneIn, PocketCast, and Stitcher. Please follow us on social media. On Facebook, we are Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa. On Instagram, at Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa. And Twitter, at Minutes Doctor. 
Alrighty, so as I said, I hope you all have had a great week and we're going to talk about a little sensitive topic here when we come back from a quick commercial break. Hello, Darla. Darla is watching us on Facebook Live. Hey, Darla. Alrighty, we're going to take a, um, well, before I do that, let's give our, our COVID update here, right? So, um, you know, we do this every week. I like to kind of update you all on new things that have happened. So this week, there are 32.3 million cases diagnosed um, so far in the United States. And that is a decline. So I, I go to the CDC web tracker and we are seeing a decline in the number of cases uh, that are being discovered and reported. We are unfortunately at 575 and a half thousand deaths due to COVID. Um, and that number is not declining as of yet, but it is not increasing. So we will take that as a positive. And on the vaccination front, there have been 250 million vaccinations distributed thus far. So of course, that is a mixed number. Some of that 250 million have had both shots when we are talking about the Pfizer and Moderna products or one shot with the Johnson & Johnson. So that is not a number that encompasses people who are fully vaccinated, but everyone who has had at least one vaccination. So of course, continue to deliberate your, your um, pros and cons about getting vaccinated. But of course, I encourage you all uh, to get the vaccination if it is safe for you to do so. So last week we talked about kids and COVID. And so I have a little bit of an update and I, that was very, very timely. Of course, I did not plan it that way, but I like when serendipitous things happen. So according to an article in the New York Times, Pfizer will seek clearance for vaccine use in children aged two to 11 years in September. They are also seeking full approval for vaccine use in ages 16 to 85. Currently, the vaccine has an emergency use authorization or EUA uh, status. Full approval will allow the drug to stay on the market um, once this pandemic subsides. By early next week, the FDA is expected to issue an emergency use authorization or EUA for vaccine use in children ages 12 to 15. I am so happy my child is in that age group and I am ready for her to get her her vaccination. So that will be a great thing, um, particularly as we enter into the summer and then going into the new school year in the fall. Clinical data, clinical data on vaccine safety in pregnant women is expected by early August. So of course, you know, as we have been talking about COVID, this has been an ongoing and evolving uh, learning uh, period for all of us, particularly for those of us in medicine and in medical science. And so as the data comes out, it is being reported. And of course, as I um, am made aware of new data, I of course will share that with you all here. So now we're ready for a break. We will be back after a short commercial break. This is Dr. Carissa and you are listening to Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa. This is fashion designer Edmund Newton. I'd like to tell you about InMass.com. 
Enmask.com is my only source for non-surgical cloth masks. I've teamed up with Enmask.com to create and design a collection of limited edition masks. These masks are washable, reusable, breathable, and most importantly, fashionable. Shop online now at Enmask.com. That's E-N-M-A-S-K-S.com for quality masks made in America. It's a new day. And while smoking and tobacco use takes more black lives than anything else, there is something we can all do. Like join in for No Menthol Sunday. May 16th is No Menthol Sunday, where churches and faith leaders talk about black health and tobacco use in our community. Sign up to participate at nomenthalsunday.org and let's advocate for change or help a loved one quit tobacco for good. And we are back. This is Dr. Carissa Hines, and you are listening to Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa. That was the late, great Gil Scott Heron. The revolution will not be televised, but maybe it will happen on the radio. Maybe because I'm saying that because I'm on the radio. But anyway, so um, getting into our topic today when we talk about racism and discrimination in healthcare, um, and, you know, it, it took me some some soul searching to bring bring this topic up and bring this topic to you all right um, because of course it is a very sensitive topic and you know by no means do I want to say that this applies to an entirety of a a group of people because of course not all people are all things at, at any given time um, but I think that we have to have these difficult conversations in order to have a better understanding and in order to improve some of the problems that we do have within our healthcare system. And unfortunately, racism is one of those things, and discrimination, racism and discrimination um, are one of those things. So I'm going to start by telling you a, a real case that you may or may not have heard um, in the news. Last December, the medical community lost a colleague, Dr. Susan Moore. Dr. Moore had been diagnosed with COVID-19 in late November of 2020 and was admitted to the hospital. Dr. Moore complained of shortness of breath and also of pain. She took to Facebook a few days after her admission and shared her story, stating that she practically had to, quote unquote, beg her treating physician for remdesivir, the drug that was appropriate for patients with severe lung involvement at that time. She stated that her doctor denied her the imaging studies to further evaluate her shortness of breath. When she did finally receive the advanced imaging studies, it was a CT scan, it showed that she had pneumonia and also enlarged lymph nodes, findings which clearly explained her shortness of breath. Dr. Moore had also complained of pain and stated that her complaints of pain 
were downplayed and that she was, quote, unquote, made to feel like a drug addict. She noted that the doctor had said he felt uncomfortable giving her more pain medication. She was eventually sent home, only to succumb to her illness two weeks later. So, of course, I want to take this moment to say rest in peace to my colleague, sister, Dr. Susan Moore, and continue to extend my condolences and love to her family, her friends, and her colleagues. So I would like to tell you that Dr. Moore's case is an isolated one. I would really, really love to tell you that, but I would be telling you a lie. So here was a woman who was highly educated and who knew how the system worked and was a part of that system. And unfortunately, that system failed her, largely because she was a person of color. Racial discrimination, unfortunately, permeates all aspects of society, including health care, leading to negative out- impacts on patients, healthcare workers, families, and communities at large. The disproportionate rates of infection and death in community of color with COVID has shown a bright light on something that has had a nasty foothold in our country's history and continues to permeate through our society today. So, of course, we are all aware, and if you are not aware, you should be aware of two very um, well-known instances of systemic racism within healthcare. And I'm talking about the Tuskegee experiment. And so I'll give you a little bullet point um, of that. So basically, this was an experiment to discover the latent or late effects of syphilis. And so the people that were enrolled in this study had syphilis, but were not told that they had syphilis and were not treated for their disease. And so, of course, you know, when we fast forward to today and we talk about um, the principles of informed consent, um, that was one serious breach um, of that because, of course, most people, I, I would dare to say all people, if they knew that they had a disease and they knew that there was a treatment for that disease, they would more than likely take it. Um, But of course, in hiding the diagnosis from these individuals, their right to be informed about their care and to make an informed decision was taken away with very disastrous consequences for some of these people. And then, of course, there is the, the story of Henrietta Lacks, who is the originator of the cell line called the HeLa, H-E-L-A, HeLa cells. So basically her cells were used to develop an innumerable amount of therapeutics, um, medicines uh, for different diseases um, because her cells were very, very special as it turns out. And her cells were used to make these therapeutics again, without her consent, without her being informed, and without her being compensated for these cells. 
And this cell line is still in use today um, in research, and her cells have been termed uh, immortal cells um, because they have propagated on and on and on and on. Like I said, very, very special. And so we in the medical community and in the community at large owe a great debt to Ms. Lax because her cells really, really um, opened a lot of therapeutic options that had not been discovered and otherwise would probably not have been discovered. Of course, um, her family now sits on the board of these uh, pharmaceutical companies that are using her cells and they have uh, a voice in saying what happens to these cells and of course are rightfully uh, receiving compensation for that. But it took, it took quite a fight, um, quite some time um, to get to that. And then there is um, Dr. James Marion Sims, a name that you may not know before today, um, who was once lauded as the father of modern gynecology. Dr. Sims developed uh, treatments for uh, fistulas uh, that would happen, um, particularly surrounding childbirth, that would have given um, lots of pain and incontinence and, and all other uh, unpleasant things. And he also developed some, um, well, the speculum that, that is used today. He developed the first iteration of that. And those are good things. However, how Dr. Sims went about developing these things is rather shocking. He performed experiments on enslaved black women. Again, no consent no information as to what would happen to them. And he conducted these surgeries and procedures on black women without the use of anesthesia. So I want you all to just sit with that for just a minute and think about having surgery, which is, you know, a major thing. And even when it's a minor thing, having that surgery without any anesthesia at all and going through that process, screaming in agony and in pain, and having that ignored, all in the name of science. And of course, there was the misguided belief at that time that unfortunately permeates through today, that black people didn't experience pain in the same way as white people, and therefore did not need to have their pain addressed. Dr. Sims performed these procedures and developed these techniques in the 1800s. We are now in 2000s. So a couple hundred years, this is still going on. But let's get back to the modern day. With COVID and nearly every other modern disease, we know a few things, right? that black and people of color have more severe disease at presentation, that they also have higher death rates from these diseases and have higher rates of disability as a result of these diseases. They have decreased access to care, lower life expectancy, higher rates of maternal and fetal death. These are things that are true. They are factual when compared similarly 
to their white counterparts. So why, why is that? When we come back from a break, we will talk about racism within and racism without the, health, the current health care system. I am Dr. Carissa. You are listening to Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa. We'll be right back after a break. Why choose Just for Pets Wellness Center? Compassionate pet care services featuring an experienced veterinary team to superior customer service in a caring and friendly environment. We offer individual attention and tailored treatment for each pet. Visit our website for more information at www.justthenumber4petsfl.vet or give us a call at 239-270-5721. Be sure to listen to The Wellness Enclave with Dr. Donna Sewell, a podcast that explores emotional health and its impact on everyday life. In The Enclave, we will address emotional health and how it is connected to other parts of your life, such as physical health, relationships, spirituality, and even decision-making. The Wellness Enclave with Dr. Sewell can be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. listening to Dr. Carissa with Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa, and we're talking about racism and discrimination in healthcare. Um, because, so as I was saying before the break, COVID has really highlighted um, these inequities uh, in healthcare that have existed for a long time, and those of us within the medical community have known that those things uh, existed, but now that it is on the news and so on and so forth, um, you know, it is being brought really to the forefront of people's consciousness, and I think that that is a great thing. Now, when we talk about racism, of course, you know, as I said before, this is not to say that every doctor you meet, every hospital that you go in is going to be racist. That is not at all what I'm saying. Um, but I am saying that it is everywhere. Um, and that while you may not experience it, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And that doesn't mean that it can't happen to you. Because as I uh, pointed out, it happened to a colleague, Dr. Susan Moore who was a part of the medical community and still experienced racism within her care. And so just to recap, um, you know, black people and people of color have more severe disease at presentation. So, 
usually, and that is always just very heartbreaking for me, when I see someone who is having problems and I diagnose them with a heart attack or with a stroke, when I know that six months, a year before, if they had had access to care, this might have been prevented. Or I see someone with metastatic cancer who, again, with access to care, could have been treated at an earlier stage. And so knowing these things and, and seeing them, you know, is what has driven me today or inspired me today um, to speak out about that. But in knowing all of these things, one of the things that we really have to um, examine is the why, right? Because, you know, there is the, the idea that race and therefore racism is just a social construct and one that can be easily dismantled. But as pervasive as it is and as um, covert as it can be, it can be difficult to identify and therefore difficult to address. So when we talk about racism without health care, and by without I mean outside of health care, the effects of racial inequities outside of the health care system will permeate inside that system as well, right? And what are the factors that go into that when we talk about economic disparities? So there is a large percentage of America, black and white, and all of the other races who work jobs that don't provide insurance. Accessing health care can be very expensive if you don't have insurance. And even with insurance, sometimes it is cost prohibitive. And that is why I see a lot of people with end-stage disease show up in the emergency room and they have not been anywhere else before because they have waited until they absolutely could not wait any longer to seek care. Because, you know, healthcare bills can be expensive and I, I will share my own personal, um, personal experience with expense. So when my daughter was born, she was born premature and had to have surgery when she was one day old. She spent 30 days, exactly 30, 31 days um, in the neonatal intensive care unit before we were discharged home. In that 30 days, so this is not including the cost of her delivery and all of the other costs of the prenatal care, but just that 30 days costs $100,000. So imagine if you have an insurance plan that that is an 80-20, so the insurance will pay 80% and you are responsible for 20%. 20% of $100,000 is $20,000. That's another serious bill, right? Because, you know, I don't know about you all, I don't have $20,000 just laying around, just waiting for something to happen, and most people don't, right? So, you know, that can be, that can be a factor in delaying your presentation to care, even if you have insurance. And of course, medication is expensive. So, you know, when we talk about these economic disparities, um, you know, we have to consider people who have insurance as well as people who don't because they are not accessing care in a lot of cases for the same reasons. When we talk about our 
living situations. So a lot of people don't have access to um, decent housing. And so that can play a factor in your health as well. Because if you're living somewhere where there's mold, that has consequences. If you're living somewhere that doesn't have high quality water, that has consequences. If you are living somewhere, for example, near a factory and there's always smoke in your environment, you don't have access to clean air, that has consequences, right? Then also talking about what we eat. There are lots of communities in this country that are considered food deserts, meaning that they do not have access to quality, healthy food. So when you tie all of the, when you tie these two, two or three things in and you get back to the, the economic disparity, you know, in many cases, it is cheaper to eat at McDonald's than it is to buy a salad. So how can we in the healthcare community talk to people about eating healthy when they can barely afford to feed themselves even on, on McDonald's? But at least if you eat McDonald's, you get full. And for many parents, many families in this country, that is the thing. You know, I want to at least provide a meal of some type of sustenance to my child. So when we extrapolate that, we send children to school hungry. And I don't know about you, but I don't function very well when I'm hungry. So we have these children who are experiencing hunger they're in class, we're expecting them to pay attention, we're expecting them to learn, but they don't have the fuel that they need in order to make that happen. So just in, in addressing hunger, we are addressing the limitation to all of the things that these children could be, right? And then we can talk about, I should have an educator on my show, so if there are any educators listening, um, Holler at me. Let me know because we're going to talk about that because that's something that we have to address as well. Going further, we talk about a lack of access to health care. Right. So there are so many communities that don't have a doctor in them. So when I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia. So, hey, Norfolk, how y'all doing? There was my community. It was this was normal for me, but this is not normal. There was a primary care provider, there was a dentist, there was a pharmacy, there was a grocery store, there was a hospital, there was a community center and several schools, all within walking distance of my home. And, you know, I didn't have to walk far, like maybe a couple blocks, to access any of those services. But communities now don't have that type of infrastructure in them. And so, you know, you, you have to have access to a clinic. It has to be there, right? So according to Medical News Today, uh, in 2014, um, this community was surveyed and about 20% of blacks in that survey noted that they could not access health care compared to 10% in white communities of the respondents in this survey. 35% in Latin communities said that they could not access health care. So if you can't get there, you can't get the help that you need. So again, 
how it all ties in when we're talking about these economic disparities and disparities in how we live and where we live. Transportation comes into that as well, because if you don't have reliable transportation, you can't get to a job. And sometimes, you know, having a car is just not even an option. So we're talking about relying on public transportation. So if you don't have access to transportation, how are you going to have access to a job? If you don't have a job, how are you going to have health insurance if it's even offered? If you don't have access to transportation, how are you going to get to this clinic that is not located in your community? Right? So all of these things that are um, based in a racial construct and a social economic construct are all of the factors that go into how racism happens within healthcare and how it is affected in healthcare. Going further, there is a persistent persistence of stereotypes that allow black and persons of color to be viewed negatively. And that also leads to implicit bias and to discrimination. And we'll talk about, about some of those in, in, a, in our next segment. So racism within healthcare. When we talk about racism within healthcare, we uh, note that it can lead to healthcare workers across the spectrum, not just doctors, either disbelieving their patients, as was the case with Dr. Moore, neglecting their patients, or even actively discriminating against them. And when we come back from a break, we will talk about specific instances and also talk about some solutions because I don't want to just bring just problems. I want to bring potential solutions as well, something that we all can participate in. This is Dr. Carissa Hines. You're listening to Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa, and we will be back after a break. Have you been looking for a radio station that gives you sports? I don't believe it. It's a touchdown. Entertainment. Are you not entertained? And other special interest talk shows. Well, isn't that special? All on one app. Yeah, that's dope. What app is that? It's the real 1100 AM app for WWE. Grab it for free in your Google Play or Apple App Store today. This is Alvin. And this is Edmund. On the Old Fashioned Health Show. Tune in each Friday from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. And listen to us live on iHeartRadio or the Real 1100 app. Where we talk about healthy information, products, and or services. And get some old school music in on the Real 1100. Man to die. 
Good morning, good morning, good morning. This is Dr. Carissa, and you are listening to Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa. We are talking about racism and discrimination in healthcare. And, you know, of course, this in the time that we are limited to, um, you know, I kind of have to give a, a broader overview. Um, but of course, you know, this is something that is an ongoing issue. And so we, of course, will address it uh, from time to time. Um, and, you know, when I was uh, featured on the Old Fashioned Health Network with Alvin and Edmund, um, you know, we did talk about the um, the biases and where they come from um, in healthcare. But let's talk about a few um a few issues here, right? So when we talk about, and of course, um, there as many patients as there are, and as as many experiences as those patients have, um, you know, of course, the spectrum of discrimination that is possible is almost endless, right? Um, so of course, you know, given the scope of time that we have today, I could not address all of those things. Um, however. If you would like to share on the Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa Facebook page your experience that may give some enlightenment to someone and it may also give someone encouragement to speak up about their experience as well. So, um, you know, head on over to our Facebook page and uh, share those stories if you are so inclined. Um, You know, I recognize and respect that this can be uh, traumatizing to relive it and I most certainly don't want to re-traumatize anyone. So some areas where we do see um, discrimination in healthcare, um, in pain treatment, that, that's a big one. So in 2016, a study reported that white medical students wrongly believed that black people have a higher pain tolerance than whites. Of these students surveyed, 73% believed this. So let's flip back a couple minutes when we were talking about Dr. Sims, who was performing these experiments on enslaved women without anesthesia based upon a belief. So over 200 years ago, based upon a belief that black people experience pain differently or less than their white counterparts. And of course, unfortunately, that stereotype has has. Um, perpetuated itself into modern medicine. Further in that study, um, it was believed that blacks had thicker skin, not true, and that blacks had less sensitive nerve endings, not true, and that blacks had stronger immune systems as well, not true. So, you know, We all have that. We're all human beings and we are all built the same. The difference in our skin color is a difference in biology. And we talked about that on on a show about melanocytes and your percentage that you have determines how light or how dark um, you may be. That's it. Otherwise, the skin is the same. Same layers, same nerve endings, same heart, same blood. It's all the same. But for whatever reason, people believe this. Now, of course, I don't know what school this this was where these um, where these students were surveyed. And I myself have never been in a situation to have been taught that. So it is somewhat shocking to me um, that people who are going into into this profession hold that belief and they probably carry that belief with them into 
their practice. Going into emergency care. So, of course, um, some communities have limited access to trauma systems, right? So I work in a lot of these small communities that don't have um, access to major trauma systems, and I have to end up sending them um, somewhere else to get that. But of course, in sending them somewhere else, that is time that is taken, right? Because you got to get from point A to point B. Black and people of color were less likely to be admitted to the hospital. Um, this one study that I found said they also were less likely to be classified as needing emergent care and also less likely to receive advanced testing and studies such as a CT scan. And unfortunately, you know, the story that I shared about Dr. Susan Moore encompasses all of these things. Um, and so, you know, of course, that was just so many wrong turns when, you know, when it could have been different um, for her as well as for that healthcare system. So, of course, when you have um, limited access and um, limited access to advanced testing and so on and so forth. But then I just said that there are lots of people of color who use the emergency room as their primary care, and that is their entry point into the healthcare system, most oftentimes when they have advanced disease. So if you have a community of people who are coming to the emergency room, they are sicker, they are dying at higher rates, but they don't have access to, even when they get there, don't have access to the advanced technology and diagnostics that they would need, that presents itself as a problem. Would you agree? Yes, you would agree. When we talk about mental health, access is once again an issue. Black and people of color have an increased amount and rate of disability. Their cases are more persistent, particularly when the diagnosis is depression. Um, it can be harder to treat for a lot of different reasons, and we will address, um, when I have a psychiatrist on, we will address those reasons. Um, but it can, be, it can be tough to treat them. But again, going back to the reasons that these biases um, happen is, you know, when people downplay your symptoms, that can discourage you from seeking care or seeking continued care. And so, you know, again, you can just kind of see how all of these things are related together. I hope I am weaving that for you, that it is not just a, a one, one thing. There is no no magic bullet um, as to why this happened, that these issues are all interconnected. When we talk about infant mortality and maternal mortality, once again, black women lead the list and black children lead the list. Black women are three to four more times likely to die from pregnancy-related causes. And I will point out um, a story when we talked about our pulmonary embolism, when we had our survivor on, we talked about Serena Williams. 
So during her pregnancy and delivery, or during her delivery, she developed some shortness of breath. And she recounts the story of her not her symptoms not being taken seriously, not being believed, and there was a delay in getting her the care or the diagnostic care that she needed. And it turned out she did have blood clots in her lungs. She had pulmonary embolism, which could have been deadly for her. So once again, here you have someone who is affluent, someone who is famous, because who doesn't know who Serena Williams is, right? But yet and still, her fame and her affluence did not shield her from being treated differently and from her complaints not being taken as seriously and not addressed in a prompt fashion. You know, so that's, you know, that's because you would think, you know, she's rich, she's famous, she's going to get the best possible care that she can get. But yet and still, she had this experience. And whenever I, I read stories like this, I always, and, and even just in my daily, in my daily going through and with work, right? I am always puzzled by how people manage in the healthcare system without someone who knows the system. And, you know, somehow, some way, I am going to become a healthcare Sherpa to help people guide them through, guide them through that system. And, and there are other people that are, are doing that as well. But getting to our infant mortality. So when we look at the rates of infant deaths, black children lead the list. 11 out of 1,000 black children will not survive their first 30 days of life. Uh, when we look at indigenous, indigenous, excuse me, people, um, that is eight in 1,000 white people, five in 1,000 Latin people, five in 1,000 and Asian and Pacific Islander, four in 1,000. So, you know, again, the numbers don't lie. And, you know, these are things that are um, measured and measurable. And so, you know, we need to know these numbers and pay attention to these numbers. Lastly, before we take our last break of the day, when we talk about addiction, okay, that there are differences in how addiction is perceived and how addiction is addressed. And I will give you two glaring examples, right? So if you are old enough to remember the crack epidemic, right? So people who use crack were addicted to crack were treated how? They were treated as criminals. They were treated, you know, they were thrown into the judicial system, which that's a whole nother kettle of fish when we talk about disparities with race. And now fast forward to today when we talk about the methamphetamine addiction, we treat that as an addiction, as the addiction that it is, right? We don't criminalize it. And perhaps you can say that in the 20 or 30 years since first, since crack first came on the scene, that perhaps we've just evolved as a society and we recognize addiction as the medical illness that it is. But I would also like to point out to you, the majority of people who were incarcerated due to crack use were black and the majority, not saying that black people don't use meth because they do, but the majority of people who use meth are white. 
at least from what I have seen, from what I've observed in, in various emergency rooms. So there's something to be said to that. When we talk about what doctors are taught in terms of recognizing racial bias, I will say most of us are not taught to recognize racial, racial bias. What we are taught, however, is that differences in race in response to disease and treatment does matter, particularly when we talk about heart disease and high blood pressure, because we do know that there are some medications that work better in certain populations. And of course, the goal is to get the blood pressure controlled. And in using race in terms of making treatment decisions can be kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, it can lead to a more accurate treatment and diagnosis and recommendations to address the issue. But then on the other hand, it can lead to increases in bias, right? Also, when we talk about measurement of kidney function, so apparently race plays a part in um, determining your what we call your GFR or your glomerular filtration rate and there are a lot of factors that go into the difference between that so if you're male or female your weight your race all these these things Um, but when we put out a recommendation about what a GFR is in some cases it has underscored the severity of disease in African-American people which leads to a delay in addressing and treating early disease, right? So implicit bias, the unconscious attribution of particular qualities to a particular group. And that implicit bias goes across race, gender, socioeconomics. All of these things can be a bias that we carry into our workplace, particularly in healthcare. So what can we do about it in these last minutes of our hour? The number one thing that I always stress is advocacy. So when you go into the healthcare system, I recommend that you do not go alone. Sometimes it is better to have a second set of ears to hear what you are being told maybe that other set of of ears will ask different questions and will also be um, a strong advocate for you. Now, when I say advocacy, I do not mean going in and telling people off or cussing people out because of course that is not going to lead to a positive patient-doctor relationship. So when you are choosing your advocate, choose wisely. I'll just say that. There also has to be an acknowledgement of racism's adverse effects on health and on healthcare and on healthcare workers, right? Because we don't exist in a bubble. We come from families and communities and and so on and so forth. And those community values and, and social mores are important to us and are ingrained in us. And we take that everywhere that we go, including into healthcare. We also have to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in colleges, med schools, residency programs, and employment in the healthcare sector. 
So we can't just say we have to start at the doctor level. We have to go way, way back because that college kid that has these implicit biases may one day be your doctor. So we got to we got to stop that pipeline at the beginning. And we can even go into high school and elementary school. And of course, if you are aware, there is a push uh, from Washington, D.C., from certain members of a certain political party that starts with an R, who are trying to uh, remove funding for the 1619 Project, which one of the pushes of that project is to um, educate in a realistic way about slavery and the experience of enslaved persons in this country. But, of course, there are people who don't want that taught for a lot of different reasons. And, again, I need an educator to come on this show, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that because I want to know about that as well. So, you know, we need an anti-racism curriculum that is substantial, that educates without shaming. Because, of course, none of us were alive in 1619. But we have to acknowledge what has happened since then and how that potentially affects the people that we come into contact every day. And once we at least have that acknowledgement, we can operate differently in the world and how we treat each other, how doctors treat patients, how patients treat doctors, and so on and so forth. So because I wanted to uh, make sure that I had plenty of time to talk about this subject, I don't have a vitamin C today. So maybe next week I'll give you two to make up for it because I want to be consistent with our vitamin C. So I hope that this discussion has been um, fruitful. I hope that it has been somewhat eye-opening to some, and I hope that it leads to better conversations um, with your physicians, with your treatment team, within your families, and within your communities. So I want to take this time to thank you all so much for joining me on my favorite hour of the week. Even when we talk about hard things, this is still my favorite hour. And thank you so much for for listening to our show. So until we meet again, hopefully next week at 11 a.m. on Real 1100 a.m., be good to yourselves, be good to each other. Take care. This is Dr. Carissa. Thanks for joining me this week on Medical Minutes with Dr. Carissa. Join me next week for more comfortable yet in-depth conversation. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to another Old Fashioned Health Network show on The Real 1100.